Holiday House Books for Young Readers, Peachtree Publishing Company, and Pixel and Ink present Ms. Rana Farouk, author of The Girl Who Stole an Elephant, and G.Z. Schmidt, author of No Ordinary Thing, in conversation with Elise Vincenti. Hi, I'm Elise Vincenti, Associate Marketing Manager for Trade, and this is the Guest Book Podcast, bringing adventure, culture, and friendship to middle grade stories. Our guests today are middle grade authors, Ms. Rana Farouk and Jeezy Schmidt. Ms. Rana Farouk was born and raised in Colombo, Sri Lanka, and the beautiful landscapes of her home country find their way into the stories she writes. She has a master's degree in writing for young people and lives in Hertfordshire, England with her husband and two daughters. Jeezy Schmidt, who I will be calling Gail today, was born in Beijing, China, and grew up in the United States, where she was inspired by the work of Roald Dahl, Judy Bloom, Louis Sacker, and many others. She now lives with her husband and their tuxedo cat in Southern California, where she dreams up stories and keeps an eye out for the Jade Rabbit, just in case. Nizrana and Gail are here to talk about their books, including Nizrana's The Girl Who Stole an Elephant, as well as The Boy Who Met a Whale, which comes out next spring, and Gail's No Ordinary Thing, as well as The Dreamweavers, which comes out this fall. Hi, Nizrana and Gail. Welcome to the Guest Book Podcast. Hello, Elise. Hi, it's good to be here. So let's get started. Um, let's first talk about what inspired your books. Nizrana, what had inspired The Girl Who Stole an Elephant and The Boy Who Met a Whale? So it wasn't an idea or a story that I have or um, some kind of a message that I wanted to uh, convey with this story that actually inspired me to write this book. Um, it was actually the weather, um, because when I started writing this book, it was um, it was winter here in the UK where I live. And, um, you know, like winters here tend to be, it was um, it was really cold and gray and gloomy outside the window. So I wrote this story as a sort of an escape to me, uh, escape for me into another world. Um, so I imagined a world of sunshine and uh, warmth and action and color and music. And I went with that. Um, I created this girl, um, Chaya, who's the main character, who's a thief, because I thought that was a nice, bold and daring way to start. Um, and then once I finished it, I realized that this was, I was actually talking about a place that I knew, um, which is Sri Lanka, where I'm from. Um, so I felt like I really liked this world and I I just expanded on it. I just, you know, um, tried to think of the character's motivation and uh, create, um, you know, a backstory for them and what happens next. And that's how this uh, book happened. I love that. I, you know, I can imagine, you know, being stuck in a, a cold, dreary winter would definitely make you start dreaming of a warm, lush um, and tropical place. Uh, Gail, what about you? What had inspired No Ordinary Thing and The Dreamweavers? Uh, so, so for The Dreamweavers, it started with an image in my head of a fisherman in the clouds. And I was thinking to myself, uh, what if he was dreaming for, instead of dreaming for fish, he was dreaming for dreams and he could put the dreams into food. Uh, so that was the basis for The Dreamweavers. And I also wanted to write a book set in ancient China with elements of Chinese folklore and mythology. Like you mentioned in my intro, um, the Jade Rabbit, it's a big part of the book. And, uh, and that's partly because my family's Chinese. So I wanted to write a book 
um, kind of like a letter to my heritage. Uh, and then for an ordinary thing, that was just inspired by, um, I think, just American history. So it talks a lot about the 19th century and the 20th century, about um, monopolies and robber barons, because I grew up in the U.S. as well. And that's also uh, a part of me. So it sounds like both of you kind of brought some of your kind of background knowledge uh, to the inspiration of your books. Did you have to do any research before you started writing? Um, And kind of what is your writing process like? Yes, I do um, start with research. And that's um, that's not just for, um, you know, to keep things accurate, because obviously I'm writing these big animals, um, you know, an elephant in book one and a whale in book two. And I want to make sure that there are there aren't many or there aren't any inaccuracies. I mean, it's not I do allow myself some license because um, the stories, they have a mildly fantastical feel. So uh, um, so I do allow um, certain things that wouldn't happen in a completely realistic, say, a wildlife story. Um, it's different to that. But um, I, also, um, I also do research because it helps me with plot. It gives me idea for this, ideas for the stories because um, based on animal behavior, sometimes I think, oh, that'll be a really nice thing uh, to put in the story. Uh, for example, in The Girl Who Stole an Elephant, when I was researching elephants, I found that elephants can smell water. And I thought this was something really really interesting and something also quite useful for these children who are traveling through a jungle because part of it is obviously survival and uh, having an animal that can smell water is going to be really useful for them because they're going to run out of supplies and the first thing that they would need is water so how useful it was was it for them that their animal companion um, could find it for them because um, in these books I want the animal to be not just kind of um, the animal sidekick but um, almost like a member of the gang where they play an equal part and they have their own role and uh, they step in sometimes to save the day as well. Um, So these things were really useful for me. I also found that again through research I found that um, Um, elephants have really thick padding under their feet. And this is, of course, uh, to support their enormous weight. Um, But that also means that for such large animals, they are virtually silent when they walk. Uh, So here was our main character, um, injured and unable to walk in the royal palace. And there was that animal, that massive animal, which could take her away and without alerting anyone to the fact, because if it was, say, something like a horse, people would know at once, but because it was an elephant, nobody knew and she could leave. Um, So that's one of the reasons that um, research helps me as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, Gail, what about you? Did you have to do any research? Yeah, so I did research for the Dreamweavers um, because I wanted to immerse the reader in life in ancient China. So I read about uh, life in the Ming Dynasty, and I looked up the imperial court and how things worked, how rankings work, and how the city was structured. Um, I left out some things um, like concubines because I wanted to keep the story PG. Um, And and also I 
this is one thing I wanted to ask Nesrana as well. Um, I didn't want to tie my story to a specific date, so I kind of left the timeline a little vague uh, because I didn't want readers to get fixated on the specific year or to tie the story to a real emperor who had lived. Um, that's not the point of the story. It's also meant to be more of a fantasy, and I took some liberties with the story as well. Um, right, yeah, because it's not, it's not historical fiction um, right, in the yeah. true sense, yeah. Exactly. Yes, that is exactly what I did with mine as well. And that's a question that I'm asked. Sometimes teachers contact me and ask me, which time period was this? And uh, I tell them that I did just like you, Gail, I kept it intentionally uh, ambiguous because I didn't want them to, because there was a similar king in history to, um, um, to the king that I've written about. But at the same time, he was different. So I didn't want, um, you know, uh, them to think that it was the same person because the the story was more important to me to keep that first and not the historical background so um i kept it vague for that reason and i think i mean just like you i think it also it gives more scope for doing things with your story isn't it because you're not tied down you can do what you want you can go where you want with it and that that was very useful for me to to keep that vagueness so you both have been talking about two books. Um, so I wanted to mention that you two are fairly new authors to the book world uh, with The Girl Who Stole an Elephant being published in the U.S. this past March and No Ordinary Thing published last October. Um, so let's start again with you, Gail. What has the experience been like as a debut author? So for me, it was it was a little nerve wracking because I published in the middle of the pandemic and I was also living in Switzerland at the time. So I was far away from the U.S. Um, in a very different time zone. And I felt like I didn't have a lot of control over a lot of things. Um, so before uh, before I was writing full time, I worked in corporate where things were, you know, based on your performance and, you know, performance reviews. So you were kind of promoted based on the projects you worked on. And uh, the harder you work, the more accolades you would get. But I feel like in publishing, it can be more subjective. So you, you don't really have control over your sales. Um, so you kind of have to just uh, learn not to depend on external uh, validation as much and believe in your story more. Was that the same for you, Nisrana? Because I guess you also uh, published your book during the pandemic as well. Yes, I mean, I can relate to a lot of things that Gail said. For me, it was actually a a learning process, um, you know, more than anything else. So all the things that you mentioned, Gail, about not, you know, you can't drive your sales yourself. You have to you know, trust other people to do it. You have to also trust the situation of the world um, in a way because that is beyond anybody's control. Um, so, uh, yes, it has been, I've had to learn a lot of things, like you said, about, um, you know, about not seeking validation, but about um, trusting in yourself and your work and just getting on with it, basically, because there, there is a lot of comparison if you get drawn into it, um, you know, which which is not going to be useful to you and uh, you're better off just you know just doing your thing and getting on with it um for me i also found that before publication before becoming a published author there's this sort of um, mis- mystique and a kind of excitement and mystery about being a published author um but 
being there now and seeing it from the other side, I feel that it's pretty much the same, except that you have a lot more work to do. Uh, so, yeah, that that was, um, you know, quite a big thing for me to realize how much of a workload you have, because before you're just writing, whereas after you've finished a book, you also have publicity, you have school visits, you have, um, you know, all this um um, kind of um, communication with your publisher you know you might have different publishers in different countries and all that is going on while you're trying to write your other book as well um, so that's um, that was something I mean I'm still getting used to it I I hope I get used to it soon because it's it's something that I didn't expect the other yeah. thing is that yeah, one thing I do love, though, is the people that I've met. I've met a lot of uh, people in this industry. Um, you know, I've made friendships with other authors and, you know, other people in the industry like librarians and teachers and, um, you know, even readers um, like children who write in or, um, you know, send their pieces of work based on the book. And uh, that has been lovely. Yeah, I was going to add that, like, uh, being an author has always been my dream since I was a kid. Uh, in third grade, I would write stories in my spiral bound notebook. And uh, I've always had that dream of being an author. But then when I know, I remember when I got my first book deal, um, I was very excited. But then uh, a week later, I felt exactly like you said, oh, things are still the same. Like things haven't really changed. It's more of, you know, it's like that thing about chasing, I guess, happiness. You kind of have to uh, find it. That's true. Yeah, I felt a bit of that. I mean, it's great. I feel really lucky, especially, you know, when I see that, um, you know, people are reading my book, when I see kids, you know, pictures of kids with the book, um, you know, I know that I am living that dream. So both of your books uh, provide a strong sense of adventure as the characters take their own journeys. Um, are you both adventurous people? Um, well, not really. I wouldn't say so. I mean, I wish that I was as adventurous as my main character. But the truth is that there's another character, the third character, Danur, who is sort of like she's new in that um, setting. And she wants to do all these, you know, really amazing, exciting, cool things that uh, the protagonist and her best friend are doing. But she's a little bit more scared. And I think that was me because I was the more bookish kid, not the, you know, not the one who would, uh, uh, not the daring one who would just do everything without any fear. Um, so it was sort of this character, uh, my main character, Chaya, is sort of like a kind of a wishful version of me, I guess, the kid that I would have liked to be. So for me, I wouldn't say I'm super adventurous, but I do love traveling to new places. And part of it is I grew up pretty much um, everywhere in the U.S. And I've lived on three continents. So uh, and I remember when I was in Switzerland, I traveled all over Europe and would go hiking in the mountains. Um, so so for my stories, uh, I guess I like to instill that sense of sense of adventure and exploring new places um, in the Dreamweavers, there's a lot of description about the mountains, and that was partly based on my time in um, in Switzerland with the mountains. What do you think makes adventure stories so compelling for middle grade readers um, as authors of books about adventure? So I think um, adventure stories 
appeal to kids a lot because it takes them on a journey far away from home and they get to face challenges and learn new things and fight villains. And it's something I think every kid kid likes. And that's why a lot of video games are kind of based on that as well. Um, a lot of popular video games are based on fantasy adventures and just traveling to new places. Yes, I agree with that as well. I think kids are basically powerless, isn't it? I mean, everything depends on their parents and the kind of experiences that they allow or um, the opportunities that they give them. So books are a way for them to take control and go to these places that they wouldn't be able to go otherwise. And I also think that there's something quite empowering in a way for them to see children their own age go out and do these things and make changes in you know in their stories I think that that is a way for them to see potential in their own futures so shifting gears a little bit um, friendship and loyalty also play important roles in your stories and your characters arcs in both the girl who stole an elephant and the dreamweavers Um, Did you include these themes deliberately when you were developing your protagonists or did it happen more organically as you, you know, continued writing your stories? Mine was definitely organically. I didn't, I didn't plan to put them there, but the thing is that because I'm writing for children and I'm writing about children, friendship is a really big thing for them at that age, because after your parents and your siblings, um, those are the main relationships that you have. And they're also quite fraught in the sense that they're not easy. Um, There's so much drama and um, so many issues that comes up. So I felt that it was important. And when I wrote this story and I had the children go off on their adventures, I was quite aware that they have to seem like real children, not just, you know, going off and having fun, but they should have inside them, they should have dreams, aspirations, fears, um, you know, uh, things like that. So because of that, the friendship just came in because I felt that that was a main thing, especially because they were a trio of children. Generally, when it's like that, there's always one who kind of feels left out, who feels surplus to requirement. So through that, um, the friendship came and it became a big part of it. Well, and Gail, for you and the Dreamweavers, the protagonists are twins. So obviously friendship is a huge part of their relationship as well, right? Yes. Uh, So I made the twins basically be kind of complete opposites because I wanted to capture that um, kind of sibling rivalry, you see. And the the friendship part also happened organically. Um, It's usually I outline the basics of the plot and things kind of evolve as I write. Um, So in the Dreamweavers, the twins, they have different temperaments, and it's up to them to journey together to the Imperial Palace to solve the mystery um, behind the curse that fell over their village. I also wanted to capture how the twins were from a poor village, and when they enter the Imperial Palace, they meet these royal children. And um, so there's also some tension there. But ultimately, I wanted to show how they could become friends and how underneath um, their differences, they were very similar. So both of you bring settings to your books to life so beautifully. Um, Nizrana, with your descriptions of the lush jungles of the fictional Serendib, which is inspired by Sri Lanka, as you had mentioned before, um, and the girl who stole an elephant. 
And Gail, with your descriptions of the sleepy villages in the southern Chinese mountains in the Dreamweavers. So, Gail, what is your writing process for bringing these places to life in such detail? You know, earlier you had mentioned um, doing some uh, research into uh, the Chinese cultures and dynasties. Um, so, was the setting of the Chinese mountains also part of that research? The mountains were not so much. It was more of Um, it was more based on photos or actual real places I visited. So uh, the mountains in China are different from the ones in Europe, but I took some of the descriptions from my time in Europe to uh, to describe the mountains. So like things like how vast they were and how how it felt to kind of trek through them um, in the woods uh, under the trees. Um, it. So usually for descriptions, I I try to have an image in mind, and then I describe it through different senses. Ms. Rana, what about you? Well, a lot of what I wrote actually came from my memories, because um, you know my memories and experiences as a child. A lot of um, my book came from that. I also filled in some of the gaps using, you know, those parts came from my imagination because when I wasn't sure of something, I just made it up. Um, I did look at photographs. I watched uh, videos, um, you know, sometimes hours and hours of footage of just elephants walking or having baths or whales swimming in the ocean, um, which all helped. But most of that didn't get into the book. What I found really interesting was that. Um, So I had these memories and experiences. You know, I've been to the jungle as a child, and I've had that experiences with leeches. And I wrote those in the book. But when I was, you know, when I was in the middle of writing the girl who stole an elephant, I went on holiday to Sri Lanka, and uh, we even went on safari and saw elephants. But none of that got into the story. Uh, what did get in was. You know all that stuff from years and years ago, and I think the reason is that those were things that I saw through the eyes of a child, and because I was writing for children, and I have to pitch it at that level. I think that's why I found it more suitable and more magical somehow to write from that point of view. Um, so yes, most of it, you know, even though I did look at other things like. Um, you know, looking online at the data that's available there. You know, even things like lists of plants and uh, trees and animals, especially um, which are endemic to Sri Lanka. Um, I checked out all those, but ultimately, a massive. Uh, you know, the main part of the book was what came directly from inside me. So speaking of magically, um, food, which I personally love reading about, also seems to be a big part of both of your books. Um, Nizrana, with your mouth-watering descriptions of tropical fruits, and Gail, with your descriptions of making delicious mooncakes. Um, so, how do you think these food descriptions add to the overall settings in your books? Well, I think describing food or the taste of food, I think it's a really Um, really good way to give the reader a flavor of that world um, quite efficiently. So I could write, you know, paragraphs of description about something describing the trees or the, um, you know, the landscape or the royal palace, or I could just describe the taste of one fruit, and the reader would get it quite quickly. I think 
Um, because one thing that I love about books, even as an adult, is when there are things that are unfamiliar to me, but which interests me enough to look it up. So sometimes after reading certain books or even during, I'm Googling things and looking up, um, you know, buildings or, um, you know, places or, you know, just things that um, have been described in books because I want to see, I want to have a picture of it or find out more about it. Um, and unlike when I was growing up with children nowadays, they can always, you know, they have a device handy to look these things up. And one of my favorite reviews ever of The Girl Who Stole an Elephant came from a 10-year-old girl. Um, she sent me this um, um, quite a, you know, a really nice, beautifully written review. And the last sentence in it was, this book made me curious to try different fruit. And it might seem pretty random, but actually, when I think about it, it's, I felt that this child has been so deep inside this story, so immersed in this setting, that when she's finished, she's curious to actually know what that fruit tastes like for real. And that made me really happy because I thought, you know, she has really maximized her reading experience of that book. You know, that's exactly what I want for everyone to do. Gail, what about you? Um, what what was your experience like, including the descriptions of uh, creating and eating mooncakes? Yeah, I agree with a lot of what Nizrana said, how descriptions of food enriches the text and immerses you in the story. And I personally love food. I'm a big foodie. And some of my favorite passages from books are about the food, like the, the memorable passages I remember from random books. Um, so in... For example, in No Ordinary Thing, the main character lives in a bakery, and I go into a lot of details about the smell of baked goods every morning. Um, in Dreamweavers, uh, food is a big part of the culture, and that's because um, food is a big part of Chinese culture. So I, I weave a lot of Chinese foods into the Dreamweavers just because it's a lot of it are things I grew up with, and the mooncakes are a big part of the story. So I um, I go into a lot of detail about those as well, uh, and it it kind of helps complete the larger story. Yeah, I love the sound of mooncakes, and I was curious to try it as well. And uh, while you were talking, I remembered that um, Turkish Delight in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I remember reading it as a child, and I had no idea at that time what Turkish Delight was, but I was convinced that it was delicious and that I love it. And I mean, I know what it is now, but and it's completely different to what, you know, what I thought in my head. But, you know, that that just stays with you, isn't it? The food that you read about and it it kind of brings the book alive to you in a way that you don't get with, you know, any of the other senses. Yeah, exactly. Gail, could you provide a little more detail about the um, cultural significance behind mooncakes? So mooncakes are used at every autumn festival, and it symbolizes the new harvest and the new year, and you usually eat it with your family and friends. So like autumn, autumn festival, I think originally it came from when people would harvest crops during the autumn harvest, and it was a big celebration. So in the Dreamweavers, uh, the village, they, they're in the su- south of China, and they base a lot of their livelihood on the crops. So for them, it's a big deal. 
So you both are immigrants. Uh, Nizrana, uh, you were born in Sri Lanka and currently live in England. And Gail, uh, you were born in China and currently live in the United States. Um, so what were your experiences like moving to a new country and learning a new culture? Um, and how do you think those experiences influenced your writing um, and the types of stories that you write? I moved from Beijing to a tiny town in rural Kentucky, and it was very different. I was the only Asian student in the school, and I didn't speak English. Um, it was I was lucky because all the kids were really nice to me, and I got immersed in birthday parties and celebrating my first Christmas. I went to Fourth of July barbecues, and Since then, I've lived in many different parts of the U.S. I've lived in the Midwest, the South, New England, and now the West Coast. And as I said before, I've also lived in Switzerland for almost two years. So in terms of how it's influenced my writing, I would say it's inspired me to write a wide array of stories that take place kind of all over the world. Um, no ordinary thing took place in New York. Dreamweavers takes place in ancient China. And the next book I'm working on is a gothic Halloween story that takes place in Europe. So, so I noticed it's kind of places I've lived in and kind of just a different backgrounds. So what, um, you know, moving from China to Kentucky, what do you think was the most um, shocking or surprising uh, difference uh, between your experiences in the two places? Um. I guess I was surprised how quiet it was because I, I came from the busy streets of Beijing it, and it's very crowded. Um, but Kentucky, all you hear at night were crickets, not, not the noise of cars honking. Um, another thing uh, I was going to say, um, how, how much bigger and taller Americans were. Uh, just compared to like Chinese. <laughs> yeah, that I feel like that's something that, you know, you don't initially think of, but then when you're, you know, standing around people that are such yes. a different height than what you're used to, it's definitely a shock. Yes. Um, Nizrana, what about you? Uh, was it really different moving from Sri Lanka to England? I can relate to the quietness that Gail mentioned because um, I'm from Colombo and it's a very busy and densely populated city. Um, so that quietness, that took a while to get used to because uh, the quietness was like noise to me because it was this sort of deathly quietness, which felt like it was, you know, pressing uh, against my ears, especially because I lived by the sea and, you know, that the background noise of the sea, the hum of the or the row of the ocean, depending on, um, you know, what it's like at the time, you know, that was kind of the background soundtrack for me, you know, from childhood. Um, and I moved to the UK as an adult. So that that's, a, that's many years of hearing the sea. And then to suddenly come to, you know, complete quietness was quite unnerving for me in a way. Um, but now I've got used to that. And when I go back to Sri Lanka, I think, what is this noise? <laughs> so, um, yeah, but the thing is, as a child, I was reading about English kids doing English things, um, which is weird. I wasn't reading about Sri Lankan kids doing Sri Lankan things because that was me. I was reading about a completely different world and completely different children doing, um, you know, all these things that was so completely out of my world, you know, they would, um, these children, I used to read the famous five, um, you know, any author called Enid Blyton, who's very popular in the UK. I don't know if it's the same in the US, but um, 
not at the moment, but at the time when I was a child, she was uh, very popular. And these books were about children who would just go off on their own and, um, you know, to, and explore ruined castles and go off on their bikes, um, you know, or they'd go camping and, you know, all sorts of things that, you know, I didn't know anything about. They'd eat plums and drink ginger beer and have potted meat sandwiches and, um, you know, that sort of thing. You know, it was a completely different world, which I really enjoyed reading about. So um, so for me, moving here wasn't as much a culture shock as it could have been. Um, it, it was okay. There were some things, obviously, which, you know, took some getting used to. But I was quite um, familiar with the culture, especially considering Sri Lanka's colonial past, because, you know, we got rid of the British only, you know, a few decades ago. So, and here I am now. So it wasn't that much of a, you know, um, change for me uh, coming here. But when it comes to my writing, you asked about writing. Uh, one thing that changed for me was that I learned to look at, um, look at that world, look at Sri Lanka through the eyes of an outsider. Because when I was there, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So I could actually, when, I, when I'm writing about it now, I can pick out which details are important to mention and which details are not necessary because, you know, my readers would be able to fill those in themselves uh, because I am aware that quite, um, you know, quite a lot of my readers, you know, in this part of the world, they may not all be familiar with that world. So I have to, you know, spell out some things and other things not so much. Um, like in that first scene, there are there are monkeys on the trees. And um, it might not seem like an important detail, but for a person who's not familiar with that place, it helps to know that, you know, the trees are full of chattering monkeys and, you know, that's part of the landscape there. So that was quite useful to me to, to be able to look at um, at my setting with an outsider's eyes. So both of you bring your own cultural experiences and identities to the stories you write, as we just talked about. Um, But why do you think it's important for children to read stories from voices and authors who come from those cultures? So um, I saw this really great tech talk by Chimamanda Nodziadichi, and it was about the danger of the single story. And she said, you need many different kinds of stories about a community. Otherwise, you form generalizations and stereotypes. And as an example, she cited the book um, American Cycle and how after you read it, you're not going to say, oh, well, every white American male must be a serial killer because it's just one of many, many stories about Americans. But it kind of shows the danger for um, underrepresented cultures that are not as um, that, that you don't read as many stories about. And I think no community is a monolith, so there's no single story about each culture, which is why um, it's important to read a wide array of uh, stories about that uh, from about that community. And I also think reading books about cultures outside your own helps broaden your horizon, um, and it's always enriching to hear from people who grew up with different background and experiences um, than yours. Ms. Rana, what about you? Yes, I saw that talk as well that uh, Gail mentioned, and I agree with it completely. You know, the danger of a single story is that you tend to, um, you'd find it quite hard to look beyond the stereotypes if that's all you've seen. Um, so a person from, uh, a person writing about their particular um, 
culture or identity they would um they would form i think more complex characters rather than go for the same old type of things that has been done before because presumably because they've they are from there um you know they'd know a wide um, range of different people and you know characters that Uh, they could write about um also what i mentioned before about uh, you know being able to see a story with outside eyes in this case it's also different to be able to see it with insider eyes and i think that's quite beneficial to the reader because they get that insider point of view because i think that um when somebody writes about their own um, own culture or heritage there is something there a layer of something that's quite hard to define or even to replicate because um because it's something that you don't consciously do so when i wrote the girl who stole an elephant um i sent it to my sister she was the first my younger sister was the first person in my family to read it and she when she read it uh, she came back to me and said i really miss sri lanka and she said you you put in all these you know tiny details and i feel like i'm there and i miss it because she she doesn't live in sri lanka like me she lives uh, she lives in europe um and when she said that it made me really happy i mean not that she's missing sri lanka terribly but because she felt that there was some authenticity in it there um which made her feel like you know she was there and she's an insider obviously and she felt that she was there and this isn't something that i you know that i consciously put in but it just happened and i think that would be quite hard if you don't know a place that well or a people that well um so uh, yes i think that's why and you know that benefit is for the reader because when they read it they are getting that inside perspective Right. I feel like, um, you know, also bringing back up the whole adventure aspect of your stories that having that authentic, you know, having the writing coming from an authentic place, you're able to transport readers to a whole new place that they may or may not have experienced on their own. Um, and, it, and, you know, like you had said, Nisrana, it really makes you feel like, you know, if you're familiar with that place that you miss it, or if you're not familiar with that place that you feel like you have a good um at least initial idea of what that place would be like if you were to travel there. So I know, you know, for me, I'm able to go to Sri Lanka or go to the Chinese mountains just sitting on my couch or sitting in a chair. So I, you know, I think that's a great thing to have as well. Since this is the guest book podcast, um and we always ask our guests at the very end, um how would you like to sign the guest book today? Gail, why don't you go first? uh despite our differences between people or underlying cultural differences i think we're all human in the end and i think stories lead us to universal truths so it's good to read a wide array of stories from different cultures nizrana what about you i would like to say that in this time in our history it's more important than ever to learn about and understand all the people that we share our planet with we are no longer unconnected countries or even continents just going about our lives we're linked to each other every single day uh, via social media and other ways so it's really important to understand each other um books and stories are one of the best ways to do this um to learn or understand and empathize 
So I wish you all a happy reading adventures. Ms. Rana and Gail, um, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Elise. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having us.